Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Nashville, it's time for Nashville Business Radio. Now, here's your host. And hello again, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Nashville Business Radio. I'm John Ray, and we've got a great guest today, uh, and I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Brian Adams is with us. He is the president of Excelsior Capital. Brian, welcome. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to have you. So let's talk a little bit about you and Excelsior Capital. How are you serving folks out there? Yeah, absolutely. So always fun to connect with another Nashville guy. I am a New Yorker who married a Nashville girl. So that's how I ended up down here. A smart New Yorker. I love it. Right. Yeah, this is my wife tells me this all the time. Yeah, <laughs> I'm sure she does. Decision I ever made. Yeah. So I've been here for about 15 years. I'm a recovering attorney. Mm. So when I moved here, I practiced law for a couple of years and was um, fortunate enough to to marry into a family um, that had invested in the commercial real estate space for a long time. So when I joined the family, I got exposure to some of the general partners and sponsors and fund managers that we were investing with and became enamored with the real estate business. Um, connected with my partner, who is also a New Yorker, who married uh, a woman from Brentwood, actually. And we started our company 11 years ago. And both of our families had invested in real estate previously. And, and we started our company to solve a problem that we saw in, in the marketplace, but also with our own families, which is providing access to direct co-investment opportunities on a deal-by-deal basis, providing for yield. So we're trying to solve for something in that 10% plus cash-on-cash annualized return. And then we also are very focused on giving people all the tax benefits that come from direct real estate ownership. So these, those are the three problems that we solve and the solution set that we offer to other individuals and families. Now, were, were these benefits that you're talking about, Brian, those, you weren't getting those from existing providers to the families and, uh, and other investors? Yeah. So from I'm not a CPA. I don't give tax advice, but there are certain vehicles or structures that people invest into commercial real estate that are very tax inefficient, right? So what I often will tell people is there's a saying, don't fight the Fed involving investing. But I say don't fight the IRS, right? And the tax code is really a series of incentives, and disincentives to encourage or disencourage certain behavior. And when you take a step back and look at it, it is very much encouraging you to own your own home, get married, and to invest in commercial real estate. Um, so those are all things that you know you should do if you're a tax sensitive person. If you invest through a fund or a fund of funds, or you're trying to get access to commercial real estate through a REIT structure, et cetera. They don't always have the best tax efficient structures. And also, especially in the fund world, if other limited partners, if other investors in that fund vehicle are non-taxable entities, institutions, pension plans, endowments, et cetera, the general partner or the sponsor of that fund may not take the tax consequences as seriously as others do. So we are only focused on working with taxable investors. Got it. Now, I want to get into that a little more here in a second, but let's just uh, widen out the lens here just a bit and talk about the the commercial real estate markets that you find interesting. Maybe what the arc of that uh, 
uh, attractiveness has been, as that changes over time, some of the demographic metrics you see that you're identifying that are important for folks to know? Yeah, absolutely. And to give people perspective, we, even though we're based in Nashville, we're currently investing in 14 markets across the Southeast and the Midwest. So our portfolio value is roughly $400 million. That equates to around 2.7 million square feet under management. And historically, we started focusing on Nashville back when we first got into the business. You know, Nashville is a great place to live. I had raised my family here, uh, awesome place to start a company, very difficult place to invest in commercial real estate these days, become hyper-competitive and pricing evaluations, in my opinion, are um, out of whack. So very early on, we started exploring other markets um, initially in the Southeast, then we've expanded to the Midwest and then Texas, whatever we want to consider Texas kind of its own animal. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are kind of the places that we've been. We started out doing urban infill development. Um, we then moved on to suburban office. And even pre-COVID, we started going away from office and focusing on the triple net flex industrial medical area. Um, and so that's what we've been doing for really the last three years is that particular area. Um, I think office is going to be very resilient and we can get into the details there and why I think that. That being said, underwriting a deal today in office is very challenging because lease renewals, lease up rates, um, there's a lot of unknowns right now. A lot of employers are pressing pause or reevaluating their, their need for space. So we think industrial flex distribution medical are very resilient um, areas and, and, and uh, uses that are going to withstand any kind of hiccups that might come in the economy as we um, progress out of this recession. So let, one thing you said there about Nashville piques my interest, and that is, are we at a point, in your view, uh, where if you're a Nashville commercial real estate investor, you really need to be selling, not holding? It depends on your time horizon, mm. right? Um, over the last 100, 150 years in America, commercial real estate has returned just about 2 to 3% annualized. So if you have a long enough time horizon, I think it makes a ton of sense, a ton of sense to invest in your backyard in Nashville because it's very difficult to beat. That being said, if you're a taxable person and you plan on not living forever, um, which you know most people do, I think it can be really hard on a risk-adjusted basis, in my opinion, to do deals in town right now. And and what's happened is we've gone from a tier two market, secondary market, 18 hour city, whatever Wall Street jargon you want to throw at it to being a legitimate gateway tier one class A market, which means that we have institutional investors. And I think it's hard for individuals and families to understand this concept sometimes. But if you're a German pension plan or a German insurance company, and you're getting a 200 basis point negative return on your bond position, which you have to hold by law, Looking at a three or a four cap opportunity in Nashville, if you have a hundred year time horizon, is a relatively good play. I personally think, as a taxable investor that has a liquidity need in 10 or 20 years, you should be getting something close to a double digit yield and a mid to high teens IRR in your investments if you're going to deal with the risk and the illiquidity premium you have to put up with to invest in this asset class. And finding those type of opportunities. In Nashville, without going really far out on the risk or the leverage spectrum, it's just really challenging right now. 
that's a great point about the the competition for investments because it, it's all about what alternatives look like and what major institutional investors are doing, um, kind of messing up the market, if you will, for mm-hmm. families and family offices, right? Yeah, I mean, what you see is that cap rate compression because these big institutional players is is pushing through to the entire ecosystem, mm-hmm. right? So if I were to do this show three or four years ago, I'd say, oh, my target price point is 15 to 20 million. Well, now it's sub 10 million mm. because I just can't be competitive at that price point any longer because people are looking for yield. There really is no alternative other than commercial real estate in America today in terms of international investors looking for places to park capital long-term. And so it's just, there's just too much liquidity in the system and it, it's made valuations, cap rates and returns go down dramatically over the last 10, 15 years. And that's that's really the advantage that families and family offices have when it comes to investing is they can go down the, the ladder when it comes to size that a lot of institutions don't want to do that. I mean, they want to have a certain amount certain minimum that they'll invest in. And so that's kind of what you're getting at there, right? Correct. You're looking for inefficiencies in the market where you have some kind of pricing power. And, you know, for the institutional folks, doing a deal under $25 million is very challenging, right? If you're running a a $250 to $500 million fund, you want to be writing $20 to $50 million checks, ideally. And so with leverage, um, doing investments or acquisitions under $50 million is just a really challenging place for them. Now, you know, we focused on kind of that much lower tier, but generally speaking, that that's exactly right. So let's talk about how you source or find those opportunities. Uh, maybe, I mean, because you, you, you're looking for diamonds in, in, in a, uh, haystack, I can mix up the metaphors, I guess. There, <laughs> <laughs> I got but, you. Yeah, you got me there. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're you're looking for smaller smaller deals in 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 a big market, and and so part of the secret there is how do you find them, right? So how does that work for you? Yeah, um, it's really no different than than you know being a sales organization. And I tell young people all the time that want to join our company that they think they're going to be on the, on the principal buy side, and I say you're dead wrong. I mean, we're going to be on the sell side, raising capital and also finding opportunities. And so what we've done is create a funnel and a CRM oriented towards brokers. And the pitch typically is, hey, the buyer pool for a sub $10 million deal in El Paso, Texas, Kansas City, Chattanooga, it's very shallow. Typically, Mm -hmm. it's going to be an individual, maybe a family, but probably not somebody that has a full-time acquisitions asset management staff and probably not somebody that has good relationships with lenders, attorneys, et cetera. So often it's a very poorly run process. There's a retrade, it's time consuming, unsophisticated, et cetera. So we go in and we say, hey, we're not going to win a beauty contest here on pricing, but if you want a professionally orchestrated transaction where we're going to come in at the price that we tell you, as long as diligence is clean, then people will be paid their fees. We're a really nice option. And and once you start doing that and building that brand awareness and reputation, brokers start calling you because we're a liquidity solution for their owners. And what we've seen is 
kind of twofold. One, right now with the fear about cap gains and 1031 going away, we've seen a lot of deal flow from high net worth individuals looking to liquidate their positions. And two, um, we often get a call from a leasing broker who has a relationship with the owner. They typically get 80% of their fees from leasing commissions and 20% from investment sales. They will call us and say, hey, I think I can give you a 30-day window exclusive on this, but I know this guy's going to sell. If I give you a shot, will you keep me on the leasing work? And that's been a great way for us to find off-market opportunities. Very nice. Uh, folks, Brian Adams is with us with Excelsior Capital. And Brian, I'm. you mentioned, I guess you might call it syndication platforms that you have internally with your clients. Uh, correct me if I misrepresented mis, uh, that, but uh, talk about how that works uh, internally for you and your clients. Sure. So the way I like to describe it is typically for individuals and families, the way that they can be a passive investor in real estate and let somebody else handle the acquisitions, the asset management, the debt guarantees, the brain damage, heartburn, whatever, is they can invest in a fund or a syndication. And the easiest way to put this is a fund is something where people commit to invest before the deals are found. And the syndication is one where you find the opportunity and then you raise the capital around it. And I started raising funds early in my career. We raised three of them. They were fine, but I don't think it's a really good fit for individuals and families for a whole host of reasons. And what happened was we started offering our fund investors deal-by-deal sidecar opportunities. So when the fund would acquire something, we would show our LPs and the fund investors, hey, if you wanted to, to come in alongside the fund here on a deal-by-deal basis, you know, it helps us extend the life of the fund. And then we just got a huge response. And we started getting introductions to friends and family and other people that want to participate. We realized pretty quickly that we were in the wrong business, right? And we should be in the syndication business, which is just raising on one particular deal um, and just the asset level. You know what that tells me about you, and I mean this in a very positive way, uh, you don't have a a big ego (laughs) because the big egos go for raising the billion-dollar funds, right? I mean, and they want that headline uh, and those associated fees that are come in perpetuity uh, or as long as the fund's around. Um, And and you're really getting yourself on the side of your investors. I like to think so. I mean, the way that I approach capital raising is from an empathetic standpoint where instead of me finding an opportunity I think is great and talking about how smart and awesome I am and kind of jamming it down people's throats, I listen to what they want and I provide them hopefully a solution set to their problems that can address some of the issues they're having. And it's just a much better way to build a relationship. And you make a good point. Oftentimes fund managers become the business becomes an AUM fee business Mm -hmm. and it's not necessarily a real estate business. And I wanted to have a a real estate business, uh, which are two different things. And I don't want to work with institutional capital. So I'm never going to be able to raise some huge blind pool commingled fund vehicle. But I really like the people I work with. I like the people that I invest with me. And, you know, I'd like to continue doing my business that way. Good stuff. Uh, So let's dive into the 
the structure of the investment that you offer. You know, you've got direct co-investment, you know, with the various RIAs and families, family offices, wealth management firms that you work with. Um, how does that work you, when, as, as you uh, go forward with a particular deal and uh, show that to a potential client? Yeah. So the typical cadence is um, we will find an opportunity typically off market. That doesn't mean not broker driven, just to be clear. Like typically there is an intermediary. I think mm-hmm. it's very healthy for the transaction, frankly. Mm-hmm. So we find opportunity, do our underwriting. We go look at it, obviously. Talk to a lot of people, run all of our traps internally. Submit an LOI. LOI has the major economic and business terms and legal terms included in it. Once we kind of get squared away on all those things, um, and this has actually changed pretty dramatically with COVID. Um, I used to just put together like a deck and a model, and then I would go have phone calls or meet people. What I started doing instead was um, we create a, a drone footage video with the pitch subtitled overlaid. Then we videotaped the pitch in kind of a, a webinar format where I asked the questions to my acquisitions guy. We do pros and cons, frequently asked questions address all of the questions that we know we're going to get, provide people with the full diligence package that the lender has. So leases, um, estoppels, third parties, valuations, that's anything you can imagine. And then we send out an email. Um, We start with our legacy investors. So they get a first look at opportunities. And then we kind of go down um, through various tranches of folks that we know. And then, you know, people come in on a deal by deal basis. They allocate what they want to allocate. And then we move forward in our diligence, closing, et cetera. And the whole thing probably takes anywhere from 60 to 100 days, depending on the opportunity. That sounds great. Now, let's talk about, you mentioned tax advantages. I want to dig into that just a little bit. And, and let's get to what investors really care about, which yeah. is which is returns, right? Yeah. And and uh, th- th- those uh, tax-adjusted returns, Right. Which which you indicated there's a big gap there between those funds that really aren't necessarily tax efficient and then what you offer. Right. And and I think it's really important for people that aren't as familiar with the space to understand that when you're looking at private opportunities or alternative investments, you really need to be focused on the net of fees after tax returns because a big gaudy gross return IRR multiple, it's really meaningless to you. Um, it might be great for the GP and it's good marketing, but it doesn't it doesn't provide the value that I think you should be focused on. So for us, we're very sensitive to that. And so, um, just on a basic level, if you were, if somebody were to invest a hundred dollars into one of our opportunities, until they get a hundred dollars back initially through returns, that's a non taxable event, right? That's a return of capital. So we make sure that's characterized as such. And then we also do a cost segregation analysis, which goes through the entire building, uh, puts a value on each fixture, light bulb, screw, anything you can imagine that's associated with the building itself. And then under the Trump Tax Act, we can do an accelerated depreciation there um, immediately after buying the property, which every deal is a little bit different, but oftentimes will um, result in 
a loss or a really minimal gain for the first one or two years of ownership. So basically, I'm giving you a 10% cash on cash yield, but your K1 is demonstrating a loss or a minimal gain that you can then offset gains elsewhere in your portfolio with. I think you just got everyone's attention on that, on that the, those last couple of sentences there. So yeah, it's uh, really, really powerful. And I love getting a phone call after we send people their taxes saying, you made a mistake. This is showing a loss in my investment. I'm, I'm saying, no, no, this is exactly what it should be doing. You, you got 12% plus you get this loss that you can do whatever you want with. And especially this, this last year with the market ripping, it's super powerful for taxable investors. Uh, for certain. Uh, Brian Adams is with us folks. And, uh, Brian is the, uh, president in the, uh, uh, runs the investor relations function for Excelsior Capital. Uh, Brian, I want to get back around to office because that's uh, a question that a lot of folks have right now. Uh, there's a little bit of back and forth in opinions on this. Um, how the, office sector, uh, urban versus suburban, uh, with return to work, will, will employees not return to work and, and how all that affects, uh, those, those office, uh, uh, those values. I'll get it out in a minute. Those values. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, office as an asset class is really about density. And when you take a step back and think, okay, a traditional office layout for a, a private office is around 350 square feet per user. Under the WeWork effect, as we call it, some of these um, you know, shared workspaces, hoteling, hot desking, bullpen, whatever you want to do, we'll call it, density was down to almost 70 to 80 feet per user. So you had this massive densification of office happening pre-COVID. And in a post-COVID world, I think the way we use office will change. But if you think about either people want to return to a place where they can concentrate and focus and get work done, or they want a place where they can have collaboration, have a dynamic conversation, get creative, have a multi-purpose boardroom kind of usage to it. I think when you put all those things together, frankly, in most markets, it's going to be a wash in my opinion. Mm. Um, and it's really hard to know, right? We all suffer from recency bias. We think the way we live the last 12 months is going to be the way we live the next 12 years. And it's just never the case. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the death of office was heralded pretty early on in COVID until people started getting burned out. They felt isolated. There was a lack of productivity. Um, and employers started to want to see kind of oversight of what the employees were doing, et cetera. Outside of New York and maybe some major metros on the West Coast, I think office is going to do pretty well, frankly. Furthermore, suburban office, I think, is going to really outperform. Because when you think about millennials are now the largest working generational cohort in America, it's roughly 73 million people. For a long time, the Wall Street narrative was these folks were going to live in Brooklyn, you know, eat avocado toast, wear skinny jeans, never get married, never have the kids. The reality is because of the Great Recession, the family formation phase got pushed back three to five years. But even pre-COVID, these people were starting to get married, have children, and increasingly want to choose where they want to live, work, and play based on quality of life, cost of living, access to single-family homes, which we're seeing play out on a massive scale nationally, and access to education for their children. Like most people, 
in their 20s, they rebelled against the family lifestyle that they had growing up. But then once they started having children, they realized, no, no, that's exactly the quality of life I want for my own kids. And so when you think about all of those factors, secondary markets and suburban submarkets within those secondary markets and the Sun Belt and the interior Midwest make all the sense in the world. And when you have that kind of demographic shift happening, all commercial real estate is going to do well across the spectrum, everything from retail to hospitality to residential to office. And by the way, they're, they're selling avocado toast in the suburbs, folks. <laughs> yeah. uh, I saw it the other day at Dunkin' Donuts. So there yeah. you go. <laughs> yeah. um, and the average home price in Nashville is now north of $500,000. There you go. Um, so, Brian, you're from New York and you mentioned uh, New York and, and some of these other uh, uh, West Coast markets like San Francisco that, uh, speaking of uh, folks putting the death nail on those markets, uh, uh, that's been a fashionable thing to do over the last year. What, what are your thoughts on those markets? It's going to be challenging in the near term. So if you think about New York and San Francisco, um, which they're losing demographics, right? New York and, San, and California both lost seats in Congress with the new um, um, census mm-hmm. for the first time in over 100 years. So they're losing people and they've got budget shortfalls. And the only way to make up for that is to increase taxes and decrease services. So I think it's going to be a real challenge in the near term for them to come back. That being said, those markets needed a price reset anyways, right? They were becoming prohibitively expensive, residentially, commercially, et cetera. And so hopefully that allows younger people and entrepreneurs to go back into those markets and afford to start a family, start a company, be dynamic. I mean, as a New Yorker, the city, New York City is the greatest city in the world, period. And it also becomes, pardon my French, but like a very challenging place to live every 20 years. I mean, if you recall the 80s and the 70s in New York, was not a nice place to be. Mm-hmm. And so it goes through cycles, right? And I think we're just in a down cycle right now and they will come back eventually. But in the near term, I would I would not want to own a lot of commercial real estate product in either of those markets. Fair, fair enough. Um, so Brian, let's, let's um, get back to talking about your investors. And I guess one, one of the things that I think would be helpful is in Obviously, you you work on a confidential basis with your investors, but it would be great if you could share on a no name basis, maybe a success story, uh, someone that's worked with you that's uh, uh, really, uh, I guess, done well because of you, the work you have uh, applied to their portfolios. Yeah, so we have a, a family office that has invested with us across a number of assets over the last, call it two three years. And um, during COVID, our assets performed pretty well. We were able to make full distributions as well as all the tax benefits that I discussed. And, um, you know, we got a call one day uh, from their CIO telling us that, you know, we were one of the only managers outside the public markets and their private investments that was able to make full, you know, monthly and quarterly distributions. Um, and it really helped kind of solidify their cash flow and pay for their overhead and expenses, which um, you know is great, right? I mean, we want to be that type of manager. We want to provide those type of returns, and 
we want to provide that type of diversification. And that's something that we kind of hear a lot from our folks. And um, what, what I also do that I really enjoy working with individuals and families is try to provide value outside of the deal itself. So oftentimes I'll get a, I want to be a phone call and hopefully get the phone call of, Hey, we're looking at investing in this space. What managers do you like? What deals are you looking at? You know, we need a referral or introduction in this market. We know you're active there because we invested alongside you somewhere. And so I love being helpful to folks beyond just the investments themselves. That sounds great. Uh, Folks, Brian Adams, he's the president founder of Excelsior Capital, does investor relations, works with capital markets arm of the firm there. Uh, Brian, this has been great. And I can't imagine that there aren't some folks that are listening, have listened, that uh, wouldn't like to be in touch. So let's give them your coordinates. Yeah, I appreciate that. So I'm very active on LinkedIn. Um, you can look me up, Brian C. Adams, Excelsior Capital. Shoot me a note, connect with me. I'd love to set up a time to call or if you're in Nashville, grab coffee. And then um, the website is excelsiorgp.com. Um, and we have a ton of content on there. So we've been doing blogs, webinars, podcasts, um, et cetera. There's more information there than you probably want. But if you want to learn more about who we are, what we do, and the investments themselves, either contact me directly or go check out the website. Sounds great. Brian Adams, Excelsior Capital. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Absolutely. Folks, just a quick reminder, you can find Nashville Business Radio on all the major podcast platforms. The search term is, of course, Nashville Business Radio. Uh, if you want a quick look at our show archive, go to NashvilleBusinessRadioX.com and you'll find uh, our complete archive there. Uh, so here's my bold ask. is Go on your favorite podcast app and find us and subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review. I'm not asking for me. I'm not asking for Business Radio X. I'm asking for our great guest, business leaders like Brian, who uh, do great work and deserve to be found. And the extent to which you can help us by giving us great reviews and uh, supporting the show, subscribing to the show, uh, it enables them to be found. So if you could do that for us, we greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to get in touch with me directly, you can go to jray at businessradiox.com. That's my email address. And of course, if you want to find uh, the Business Radio X National Network, you can go to businessradiox.com and find our complete uh, national network and all the shows that we do uh, nationwide. So for my guest, Brian Adams, I'm John Ray. Join us next time here on Nashville Business Radio.